Here from Radio Row, our Super Bowl 47 coverage rolling along here at the New Orleans Convention Center. Darren McFarland here at 1025 The Game Table. All this week brought to you by Low T Center in Brentwood inside Maryland Farms and Freeland Chevy Business Elite Sales. Really thrilled to have our next guest here at our table. You can see him on CBS Sports. Handles a, a ton of the college football. Uh, I guess college football today would be yeah, the, the right it. way That's to describe it. it. Spencer Tillman. Here at our table. Spencer, how are you doing? Darren, I don't mean to brag, but I'm doing pretty good. How are you holding up? <laughs> hey, <laughs> that's the way it should be. I like it. So uh, how, how is this week going for you? It's been great. You know, it's you get a, it's a reunion. You know, it, it's right. as important. This is our Super Bowl right now. I mean, it, this is as important to the media types as the game is for the players. And the players kind of have a different approach. They're not really trying to get warm and fuzzy with the opposition. But we get a chance to do that. And then come along and, you know, inform some people about good stuff like uh, the low-T centers and all that. It's just it's great. It's fun. What did you? How different is it than when you were a player with the 49ers when you went through this? Yeah, in terms of preparation, that part of it doesn't really change a whole lot. In terms of the mindset, um, you know, there were times when it was two weeks out, and now it's a week out, or, or whatever the, the context is. The focus is the same. It's really about uh, normalizing everything you've been taught where it's repetition and rote, and then keeping the organizational structure in such a way where there are no distractions or as few as possible uh, as can be leading up to the game so that everything is normal to the degree it can be normal. And then you go out and execute. So that part of it doesn't change. Um, these two coaches are kind of control freaks. Uh, one of them does a better job of projecting something opposite of that. Uh, Jim is the one that doesn't do the great job of that. Uh, he is who he is, and, uh, and I think he's been very successful, and no one can argue with his approach. What did you think of Randy Moss on media day right. in a 49ers jersey right. proclaiming to everybody that, um, greatest let ever? me see, <laughs> I'm the greatest receiver to ever do it. That's his Amazing. quote in a 49ers uniform. Well, having you know played with uh, Jerry Rice, I would be hard-pressed to say that um, there was anybody who prepared and performed better than that guy. Um, number 80 was simply, in my opinion, the best in the business. He was the benchmark, uh, the standard that everyone should aspire to be in terms of preparation, ultimately what, what produced on the football field in terms of results. Uh, his numbers bear that out as well. And even though the game has changed and become purely uh, more so a spread quarterback type oriented deal where the receiver's numbers should reflect even greater success, he had that success in an area where we had two backs. And Roger Craig and Tom Rathman was going to get the ball at least 25, 30 times a game. And so he did it in an era when it was truly a, a dual kind of scheme. And uh, he's the best ever. I've always wondered, Spencer, you came from the big school. You, you came from the big football factory in Oklahoma. Oklahoma. Yeah. You know, we had Steve McNair in Nashville that right. came from Little Alcorn right. State. And right. Jerry Rice, the little school in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. Is there any advantage to playing, you know, is there any advantage to an SEC player right now right. moving on to the next level to the guy that plays Division II? Well, that's a great question, and here's why it's important to know why the potential for both scenarios to produce great players. It depends on the character of the player himself. Jerry Rice will tell you to this day that he was scared of being cut. I mean, that, was, that fear drove him. Uh, sometimes if you're wired the right way, if you're McNair, you know you, by virtue of being a quarterback, you have to have a measure of confidence coming in, okay? So you have a little bit of chip on your shoulder. You combine that with the fact you're from a smaller school, but you've had a program that allows you to have the skill set, exploit it, and practice, spreading them out long before you got to the professional ranks. There's a measure of confidence that comes from that. Nick Saban is fond of saying the greatest ability is dependability. So if you've had a mark and a consistent path of, and, and history of being consistent and predictable and productive, confidence is the byproduct of that. And those players that you mentioned had that. Now, Jerry's was a little bit different because 
it seems like the farther away you get away from that quarterback position, the one that touches the ball every single down, the less the sense of confidence tends to be because there's so much you have to move around before that ball gets to your hand. It has to get from the center to the quarterback. The protection has to be there in place. So if a receiver, there's a lot of angst and consternation that, that happens before the ball actually gets in your hand. Alternately, a running back, it goes from one guy, boom, you're there, it's in your hand. So you tend to be a little bit more confident about what you do. But Jerry was uh, just the opposite. You're a Houston guy. You actually uh, played for the Oilers. Any, yeah, any teammates school, <laughs> stick out to you when you were with the Oilers? Yeah, one of them, uh, Brad Hopkins kind of sticks out Brad to me. Brad Hopkins. Number 72. He was a big guy and kind of funny. You was know? he quiet or, yeah. or or was he? did he like to tell stories and, he and talk a lot? He always told stories and talked a lot, you know. And uh, you used to take what you heard and divide it by two, and then you were halfway close to the truth, you know. But he kind of reminded me of, like, the Giants uh, who were in the Bay Area when I played with San Francisco on the baseball side. You know, I think it was Harry Carey said, you know, the Giants won't ever win the pennant because they're too busy drinking Chardonnay and eating prawns. Hell, they're only shrimp, and everybody knows it. You know, and that's kind of the way Brad was. He was just kind of, like, telling stories. You didn't know if you could believe half the stuff, but I did believe those two Rottweilers that he used to have. Don't know if they're still around. But, man, one of them about bit my leg off when I tried to shake his hand one day. Yeah, so he had, that was his security. That was it. And it, it, that's, you know, that's some insight there because he had to have, despite his hulking frame, now I understand he's lost some weight. He's late, lost a lot. But he had those dogs guarding him during those times, and he may be not as confident as most people thought he was. That explains a lot. See, he lost, when he was three-plus, I won't mm-hmm. go any further than that, Spencer, mm-hmm. he had Rottweilers. You can call him Biscuits because okay. he was three Biscuits away from, like, 342. I mean, Spencer okay. Tillman said that. Yeah, okay. Now he's moved down, mm-hmm. and I think he's moved down a little bit in dog pit bull. They're a little bit smaller than the oh Rottweilers, but he has the pit bulls. Nevertheless, now. they have that reputation. Though. Yes, still uh, guarding is he, Brad Hopkins. Is he concerned about the image and the impression of the pit bulls guarding him and all that stuff? I mean, that's just okay. I mean, I love dogs. Do you Animal think lover. he's a guy that worries about his image? Or you reputation? know what? I think you're right. I think he's not longing <laughs> on confidence right now. <laughs> And I, that may have started earlier because you know he had pretty fleet of foot. <laughs> right. He could actually play basketball. Yes. And slam dunk at one particular point in time. Now, he's also a confident guy, and he'll tell you, be the first to tell you, he he's doesn't lack for confidence. Uh, so he's changed. How do you think the Chip Kelly experiment will work at the next level? If he has a quarterback that can run his scheme, I think it's going to work extremely well. But, I mean, Spencer, we've seen guys. You know, Steve Spurrier came into the league with same accolades. Yeah. Offensive genius. He's a wizard. Look at his team's. Failure, gigantic yeah. failure. Nick Saban. I mean, guys that have been very successful at the collegiate level yeah. bombed out at the next Here's level. Here's what's the difference, though. Steve Spurrier came in with a spread attack, a wide-open attack. This is a run-based scheme that has spread elements to it. It neutralizes what historically has been a strength for most of these teams. Just look at the film of that, uh, that Green Bay Packer game. Matthews on the edge didn't know what to do with the read option uh, at the point of execution, at the mesh point. They looked lost. Speed was an asset of his. Intelligence, it was absolutely neutralized at the mesh point because now you take that asset and you neutralize it. You say, you're not going to be able to just use that speed to get to the collision point and crush our fullback. I'll take it out of the pocket. And guess what? If you're not in your place, I've got 4-4 speed, says Kopernik, to outrun you. And if you try to bring that safety down to contend with me and then you bring that, that, that corner inside to kind of be a threat to stop me from running it, I can run a fade route on you, and I've got the accuracy to make every requisite throw in the book, and I've got the accuracy to hit you over the top. So now you've got a triple threat, and in the strictest sense of the definition, 
in a Colin Kaepernick that didn't exist in anybody else who has historically run this attack. And Chris Alt, when he put this together at Nevada almost 25 years ago, had something on his hands, so much so to the point where now the college game is dictating what's happening at the professional level, at least in about maybe eight to ten teams. They've got to account for it, particularly if you're in that division where you've got to defend him week in and week out. So this is a seminal moment in the history of the league where now, for the first time, the college game is driving the success of what's happening at the pro level. Here's what concerns me, though. Mm -hmm. If you don't have the backup, Spencer. Oh, great point. Then what do you do? Great point. Because the read option and the pistol and these things we're seeing, yes, Mm -hmm. if you've got RG3 and Kaepernick and – and these guys, Russell Wilson, yeah. what he did in Seattle this sure. year, and, and maybe it's going to be Geno Smith. Maybe he's the next guy, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and maybe in Philadelphia. What do you do when the starter goes down? Because if the backup can't do the same thing, you can't change your offense in the middle of the season. Well, you may not be able to change your offense in the middle of the season, but remember, this is an evolution. Who says that your backup can't do the same thing or doesn't can't be drafted to do the same thing? If they get out of the mode of drafting a classic or a traditional drop-back quarterback, that could be, again, an extension of how much of an impact this system, this style, and Colin could have, where our backup has been drafted with this profile in mind. Who's to say that that can't happen? You can still pass out of it. We're just expecting more from that position. So I envision a day where if he, Colin Kaepernick, has the kind of success that he's able to have, he could literally change what you just talked about, who that second quarterback is going to be, who we target, who we draft, who that skill set is going to benefit most in terms of complementary positions. And it took a while for, for San Francisco's running back to really appreciate what it can do. But it can be a boon for a running back as much as it is for anybody else on the field. Did you ever play with a guy who had a fake girlfriend? You know what? Um, I never did. Uh, and at least I never saw her. Uh, <laughs> and I wasn't aware of that, but... That was a tough spot for Manti. So what do you do? The Titans have the 10th pick, and, you know, all the projections before this crazy Mm -hmm. story was right around, you know, 6 to 10 range. How do you handle this now if you're an NFL team? Well, I played with uh, most of those guys on that Titan team, you know, uh, Mike Munchak and, and, um, you know, Bruce and all those guys that are still there now. Uh, And I think even uh, Brown is back there now on the defensive side of things, former Kentucky coordinator. Steve Brown. Steve Brown. Yes. So got a lot of guys that I know a little bit how they think and what they're about. I can tell you this, that Manti Teo's stock went down a whole lot in that championship game. He was exposed in, in the closest threat to what he would face at a pro-caliber style offensive line. Uh, Barrett Jones and those guys at Alabama mowed him, and they, they beat him pretty good. He, he missed more tackles in that one game than he did in his entire career. I mean, probably about seven or eight that I, I saw, and it was all personnel related. In other words, not being able to take on blocks and get off of those blocks. Unless he can do something to mitigate that, and I don't see how he's going to get on the field in an active live situation to do that, you know. I don't know how you change that impression because if you look at who they played this year, that was the closest thing to what they would see of resembling a National Football League team. You were nice enough to sign our low-T helmets sure. here at our table. I know uh, they're near and dear to your heart. Yeah, they are. And, again, it's really because, look, my numbers worked out well. I'm in between that 350 and 1,000 range, so I'm in a good spot. But just the mere fact that I needed to know what they were was important because I tell the story all the time, and this takes you back to the Houston-slash-Tennessee connection again. We had a guy named uh, Doug Dawson. Doug Dawson was an offensive lineman, kept bugging uh, Kevin Gilbright, who's now the coordinator at the New York Giants, won a Super Bowl and all that stuff, to, to, to get tested for something. Okay, He was selling insurance. This is what the guy did in the offseason. Kevin Gilbright just did it to get him off his back. Found out that he had cancer. All right, Got treated, successfully beat it, gone on to win Super Bowls. Great success story. Now, Loti, 
isn't going to kill you necessarily, but it can help you understand of what your performance levels are and why you're not living the type of life that you probably could live if, in fact, you, first of all, diagnosed it. Ten minutes is all it takes. Find out what that number is. If you're out of that sweet spot, you can get it taken care of relatively simply. And it's not a stigma attached to it. It's the quality of life issue. I played with the Wounded Warriors yesterday in a football game. Lasted almost two hours. I'm bouncing around here today because I'm in good shape. I'm excited about life and all that stuff. If that's kind of gone from you, you might want to check your low T levels, your levels, you know, in testosterone levels, because it, have a, it could have a direct connection in a relationship. So that's all. Just being aware more than anything else. He can do it all. I mean, he plays football with wounded warriors, <laughs> talks football, played the game, low T center. He's got a great message. He can do Harry Carey impressions. Hey. Spencer Tillman, CBS Sports. <laughs> Thanks for stopping by. You bet, my man. Take care. All right. All right. We'll take a break here on 102.5 The Game.